Good morning. It is truly a wonderful privilege to be up here to be able to open God's Word with you this morning, which we will at Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at the, the last letter to the churches of Revelation, a letter to a church that ended up disgusting Christ church of Laodicea. Need to do a little bit of background on Laodicea just to help with the context of what we're going to be reading a little bit later on because without some extra biblical looking at Laodicea we don't know a lot about this church. We do know that it received a letter from Paul. We know that um, from the book of Colossians at the end of the book of Colossians. But, and we also don't have that letter, but we also know that the letter that the Colossians received was supposed to be given to the Laodiceans. We don't know if that happened either. I uh, am led to think that it probably didn't because the church was in a situation that uh, if they'd read the, the, uh, the letter to the Colossians, uh, they wouldn't have enacted upon it, they wouldn't be where they are. So this city of Laodicea, it's particularly known for four things. Extra-biblical texts and um, books will tell us that it was firstly known for its wealth. It was a very wealthy city, financial centre of the world, uh, as the whole region, sorry. They had money to burn. Laodicea was destroyed in an earthquake in AD 60. And we know it was rich because Tacitus, the Roman emperor, Roman emperor would say in his writings, this city, without any relief from us, recovered itself by its own resources. So they had a massive earthquake and they were rich enough to put themselves back together again. It was a rich city and we need to remember that as we look at this letter that the Lord has written. Secondly, they were known for the, fine, uh, the production of fine, quality, glossy black wool and they exported it all around the area that they were in. And so they were into textiles. Thirdly, they were famous for a school of medicine and particularly for a special salve known as Phrygian powder. Now this powder was the cure-all for, for eyes. They had the ability to fix eye defects. Phrygian powder. Three things that they were known for, but for all its fame, Laodicea was also known for something else. It had a horrible water supply. When I arrived in Adelaide 23 years ago, we had a horrible water supply. I'm not actually sure it's any better, but maybe I'm just used to it now. Came over to go to college and one of the chaps that uh, came the year before me, he used to get um, blisters on his face from drinking our water. And so it's not a good water. And Laodicea didn't have a good water either. It was a horrible water supply. The city of Hierapolis was 11 kilometres to the north of, the, of Laodicea. And it, it was known for hot springs. They had lovely healing hot springs. Colossi, only 16 kilometres away, had pure, refreshing, cold water springs. They were doing well. But Laodicea, as rich as it was, has a serious water problem. See, the water used to come down from the north in an aqueduct, about 10 kilometres long. By the time it arrived, it was neither cold and refreshing as of Colossae, neither was it warm and healing or cold, uh, hot and healing from Hierapolis. It was filled with minerals as it gathered along this 10 kilometre uh, aqueduct that the Romans had put up and therefore by the time the water reached Laodicea it was lukewarm it took on a it will take on a real significance later this water situation in the letter as the Lord writes to this church so we have a small picture of Laodicea it was rich it was known for its textiles it was had lousy water and it had a medicine school. And so the Lord coming, knowing these things, he was going to write a letter that really hit them hard where it, where it hurt. 
And the reason I know that is because he says in, in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God says this. He was faithful and true witness and he was going to be faithful and true to what he was going to be say, even if it hurt. But in every letter so far that we've uh, read and studied, the introduction used by the Lord has been a key to the interpretation of the rest of the letter. The Lord said, I am this and this and this, and then he went on to uh, show the church through those uh, attributes of himself. And so the first, the Lord presented himself as the Amen. Now, we're all familiar with this word, aren't we? We know this word. We say it when we close in prayer. We say it when we want to express an agreement at a meaningful statement. We have people from the congregation saying, Amen, brother, preach it. Jesus used this word, Amen, very frequently. He used to say, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Well, actually, it's Amen, Amen, I say unto you. To the angel in the church of Laodicea write, the truth says this, the Amen says this. And we know from John 14, 6 that Jesus says, I am the truth. Not that he tells the truth or, or anything like that. He is the truth. Everything that emanates from him is truth. This, everything emanates from this word is truth. Because in Isaiah 65:16, God is called the God of truth, the God of Amen, which is how it's uh, how the Hebrew word spells it. And so, everything that Jesus Christ is going to say to this church is the truth. You can say the truth, nothing but the truth. And secondly, Christ reinforces that idea of being the Amen, the truth to be claiming to be the faithful and true witness. Now this letter was about to expose this church to its spiritual condition. And so the Lord hides nothing from them. He is faithful and he is truthful. And in this case, faithful means that it's going to hurt them. But he is faithful to that. The third phrase, the beginning of the creation of God, is an explanation of the fact that Jesus Christ himself was the one who began creation. Now, a lot of religious bodies would like to think that this means he was created first, that the beginning has the idea of the first person to be created. But that's not what it's saying. It says that he's the origin of creation and I know that because the word beginning is the word arche. It combines the thoughts that Christ has the supreme authority over all creation. And arche can, can be and is translated in our Bibles as ruler. So it could be not only the beginning of the creation of God but the ruler of the creation of God. It's the same word that Gospel of John opens with and you know that in the beginning... In the Arche was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then two verses later, John says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so Jesus Christ is the truth. He is faithful. He is a witness, a true and faithful witness, and he is the Creator. A picture of how Jesus Christ describes himself to this church as he writes to them. And then the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, gives us a problem, or gives us a picture of the problem of this church. And sadly, Laodicea joins the ranks of Sardis. You might remember Sardis had no approval from Christ. The other five churches all had uh, an approval from Christ. I know your deeds and I see this and it's great. Not Sardis and not Laodicea. He goes straight into condemning them. The glorified Lord says in verse 15, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. 
I wish you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. These are harsh words. And this church had two problems. The first we've just read in 15 and 16. The second is in verse 17, which we'll read a little bit later. Let's have a look at 15 and 16, the first problem they had. And the problem they had is they lacked commitment. This was a church that was lukewarm. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. And then Jesus says, I wish you were cold or hot. Now, I wonder what you think that means when Jesus says, I wish you were either cold or hot. In this instance, we might be tempted to think of as hot as being spiritually on fire. And Jesus saying, I wish you were spiritually on fire. And some people think of cold as being unspiritual or unsaved. And Jesus saying, I wish that you were unsaved. Cold and hot, two extremes that the Lord is using. Can you imagine Jesus saying this? I know your deeds, that you are neither unsaved or super spiritual. I wish that you were unsaved or super spiritual. But I don't think that's the correct interpretation here. You see, this temperature idea is not found anywhere else in the Bible and we must be careful not to impose our own analogies on it as we come to it. Because I believe the whole image here of cold, hot and lukewarm relates to that water supply of the Laodiceans that was lukewarm and almost undrinkable. Can you see the image of the water here I spoke earlier? Hot water from Hierapolis. Very healing, soothing. Colossi, the the pure cold water. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, but lukewarm water is useless. In fact, lukewarm water can only serve the purpose of being amatic. That's an interesting word, isn't it? I had to look that one up because I wanted to find a good word that we can hang on to if we're lukewarm. Emetic means it's a medicine or a substance given to you or I to cause vomiting. Our daughter swallowed some stuff that she shouldn't have when she was about five. And I imagine she was given a lot of stuff and I imagine some of it, all of it was emetic. It was given to her to to cause her to, to vomit. And I want us to remember that word because I don't want us to be an emetic church. And I want you to cling on to that word, emetic, a substance that causes someone to vomit. You see, this is a very strong warning given to this church. And I believe it's a strong warning that says, that Jesus says, I wish you were healing, or I wish you were cold and refreshing, but you're not. You're lukewarm. And you have no purpose. And so I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth, which is what the word actually means. But at this stage, it is still a warning. That's what I love about this passage because we're going to see the Lord will give us and give this church a way out, as he always does. He's always given the whole seven churches a way out. But at this stage, it is still a warning. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot, good for healing, nor cold, good for refreshing, I will spit you out of my mouth. You know, what's it mean to spit you out of my mouth? I can't even imagine the Lord desiring and expressing this to any of us. It's the strongest term that I, I can see for, a, for the lukewarmness to not be endured. This lukewarmness of this church is going to be done away with. You might remember that last church we looked at were dead. But he didn't say anything about vomiting out of his, out of his mouth. It's, like, it's almost like the dead church he can deal with, he'll work on and he gave them ways to get out of it. But this lukewarm church, is, it's, it's like a, an upsetting. 
He just wants to get rid of us, spew them out of his mouth. It's a very hard warning. I wonder if we consider ourselves sometimes to be lukewarm. I wonder if we've ever thought about the fact whether we're lukewarm. Whether we're hot, healing or cold, refreshing in the Lord. Or whether we're lukewarm. What might a lukewarm church look like? Well, from first impressions, it may be a good church to join when you think about it. You look from the outside, after all, there was no false teachings mentioned in in Laodicea like it was in Thyatira, so possibly weren't teaching anything false. There was certainly no persecution from Jews or the Romans, as in Smyrna. The church in Laodicea wasn't a dynamic church, but it wasn't a dead church like Sardis. It seemed like it was a safe, comfortable place to attend and have membership. You might say it was well within the range of evangelical respectability. A warm and caring group of people meeting together to reinforce Christian values. Just a group of believers content to concoon together with other believers for an hour a week. Call them tepid, call them lukewarm. But call them disgusting in the eyes of the Lord. I will spew you out of my mouth. Why? Because they're lukewarm. They don't take a stand for anything. You're not doing Anything for me, the Lord says. You're a group of half-hearted nominal Christians who are self-sufficient. And that's what the scripture says, and we'll get to in 17. They said, we don't need anything. And the Lord says, you're making me ill. Now, there's a fancy word that we sometimes use called entropy. It's used to describe the tendency towards decay and deterioration of everything around us Left to itself, everything is in a state of decay. A car left untouched in your driveway for 10 years doesn't become better. It becomes a piece of useless metal. It's that type of entropy. And I'll get technical with you for a second. The second law of thermodynamics says... A closed system eventually moderates so that no more energy is being produced. In other words, unless something is added from the outside, any system decays and dies. Whether it be us or anything you think of, if something is not added from the outside to that system, it will decay and die. Without electricity, the hot water in the hot water system becomes lukewarm. Without electricity, the cool water in the fridge will become lukewarm. So why am I telling you these these thermodynamic things? Because I wanted to pass on to you that Christ's church cannot be a closed system. Jesus said in John 15, 5, without me you can do nothing. And what do we have at this church? I know we haven't read it yet, but later on in verse 20, he says, I'm standing at the outside of the door and I'm knocking. I want to come in. But this church, look at verse 17. I am rich, they say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Not even the Lord. This church was self-satisfied and thought they had need of nothing, but all the while their spiritual power was decaying because the Lord was outside the church trying to get in. And we'll see that in verse 20. If you could compile a hymnal that would be appropriate to the use in this church, I think it would include such songs as, I Surrender Some. Take my life and let me be. Sit up, sit up for Jesus. My hope is built on nothing much. Or be thou my hobby. 
Do you have a heart for seeking God? Do you have a passion, as we'll see in the word zeal in the verses to come? Then if not, then you're lukewarm. Do you give yourself to others so that they can see Jesus in you? If you're not, then you're lukewarm. Do you place knowing the will of God and doing the will of God before everything else? If not, you're probably lukewarm. The Laodiceans had a problem with commitment. How is our problem? What is our problem? How, how, are we, do we have a lack of commitment? Are we lukewarm when it comes to the Lord? The conductor of the community orchestra was almost out of his mind. At every single rehearsal, there had been at least one member who had been missing. Planning a well-organised concert was almost impossible. At the last rehearsal, he called for attention and said, I'd like, like to take this time to thank the first violinist for being the only member of the orchestra to attend every rehearsal. And the violinist smiled shyly and humbly and said to the conductor, well, it seemed the least I could do since I won't be here at the concert tonight. <laughs> Is that our commitment to the Lord? I know that was just there just to bring the idea of commitment. Are we making Jesus Christ want, us, want to spew us out of his mouth by lack of commitment, by being lukewarm all the time? Or are we the healing springs of Hierapolis or the refreshing springs of Colossae? Or are we an emetic people? Are we causing our Lord to be sick? That was the first problem of the church. They were lukewarm. And the Lord said he would spit them out of his mouth. But they had a second problem found in verse 17. And that problem was that they were evaluating themselves by the world standard rather than God's standards. You see, the only good thing in Laodicea is the church's thoroughly good opinion of herself. And even that's false. Verse 17 says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. This is the, the risen Lord looking past what other people don't see. Other people could see they were rich and they become wealthy. They had need of nothing in their, in their richness. But the Lord says, you do not know. You're actually wretched. You're miserable. You're not wealthy, you're poor. You can't see, you're blind. You haven't got clothes on, you're naked. In the world's eyes, they were doing fine. They were wealthy, self-sufficient, comfortable. I'm sure if we went to the board of the Laodicean church, they could proudly show you the latest annual report with its impressive statistics. Lots of money coming in, yet Jesus said he was about to vomit them out of his mouth. You know, the church that Jesus Christ desires is never meant to be a country club run for the benefit of the members. His church is always supposed to have been and should be salt. Something that makes a difference in the world. <coughs> Christ's church is to be light, shining in that world that's blinded to God's purposes. In fact, instead of being spiritually rich, in the Lord's eyes they were bankrupt. Do you remember the three things that made this city famous? Their wealth, the, the eye ointment or the eye salve, and their fine wool, shiny black wool, their fine cloth. Well, Christ is saying to them that in actual fact, they're actually poor, 
and blind and naked. The very opposite to what they thought their wealth was built on. So we see the problem of this church is they lack commitment and they were relying on their worldly possessions. I think at times we're all guilty. We're all guilty of these things. And you know, after reading the letter to this church, it's a scary thing to consider the violent reaction of Christ to lukewarmness. I'm not talking about being dead or unsaved. We're talking about being lukewarm as a Christian. So what's the solution? Because the Lord always gives a solution. We're looking for a solution, aren't we? Well, I hope you are. We're all looking for that solution. Well, firstly, verse 18, just going back to 17 a little bit, because you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, he says, because that, the Lord says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I just love the way Christ makes this so relevant to the Laodiceans. The three things, gold, clothes, anointment, the Lord now brings up and says, he advises them to do things. The exact three things most important to the Laodiceans, the three things they thought they had an abundance of, the Lord says, I advise you. But to the key to this verse as we get over the gold and the garments and the isav, the key to this verse are three little words. And they're the ones in verse 18, just in, buy from me. You see, the remedy to all this situation, to their lukewarmness, is Christ. He says, buy from me. I advise you to buy from me. You see, Jesus Christ has all we as a church need to function. Jesus Christ has all any church needs to function. You know, it's nice to have buildings. We're looking for a building at the moment, and we so should. And it's nice to have this building at the moment. It's nice to have beautiful music that we've been having and the singing. These aren't wrong. They're not wrong things. But they're not what the church needs. What our... What it needs is what our Lord Lord describes here. Gold, white clothing and eye salve. And it can only be attained from the glorified Jesus Christ. So let's have a look at them. What do they mean? Well first in verse 18 we need to have and buy from Jesus Christ gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Now these Christians had plenty of money. They had plenty of gold but their gold was no good. The gold they needed was to be refined by Christ's fire. What does that mean? Well, Peter will interpret that for us. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, 6 and 7. I'll get you to turn there because you can mark in your Bibles that it has a correlation to Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And you know he's writing to a persecuted, scattered church. And he says in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Nothing makes God's people examine their priorities faster than being distressed by various trials. Why do we go through these trials? So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why we go through what we go through. 
That's what this church needed first. They needed real wealth in Christ, not gold. They were too comfortable. It was like their faith had never been tested because there was no persecution. They had all this money. They had all this wealth. Faith was not there. They were saying, I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have no need of nothing. They believed they had no reason for Christ. No wonder in verse 20 the Lord will say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. They thought they were self-sufficient. They lacked Christ. So the Lord says, Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. What is being rich in the eyes of the Lord? So that the proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honour in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what gold is to the Lord. Being rich in the eyes of the Lord is the proving of your faith. So that the revelation of Jesus Christ, we may be found to result our praise and glory and honour to Jesus Christ. If you rely on your own riches, you will be lukewarm. But having faith in God leads to healing, leads to that healing hot water or those fresh cool springs. And it also leads to not being vomited out by the Lord. Having faith in God refined, precious as gold refined by fire. Then secondly, the Lord says, I advise you to buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. What's he talking about here? Well, first of all, it's a wonderful contrast to their spiritual nakedness and the black cloth famous at Laodicea. Now, we know that white cloth always speaks of righteousness, particularly in the book of Revelation. The fact is, we're all morally naked before God. You remember the story of the emperor in Hans Christian Andersen's story? It's the same thing. These Christians thought they were clothed in splendour when they were really naked before God. Just turn quickly to Revelation chapter 19 verse 8 and to see, using the same writer in the same book, what it means to, be, to have white garments so that you may clothe yourself. Revelation 19.8 says, It was given to her, that is the church, We are the bride of Christ. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. See, these people, we often talk about fine white garments. In a way, they had the fine white garments. They were covered by the blood of Christ. But here it says in Revelation that we are, as a church, the whole of the church, to clothe ourselves in fine linen because the fine linen, what we do, is the righteous acts of the saints. There was no righteous acts of the saints in this church, in Laodicea. Now, you might remember that salvation means that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. His righteousness is placed into our account. But it doesn't stop there. Because sanctification, which is the growth of us as a Christian, the sanctification means that his righteousness is imparted from us. It's made part of our character. It's made part of our conduct. And therefore we have righteous works. Righteous works don't save us, but because we have been imputed with Christ's righteousness, we now impart his righteousness as our sanctification grows. But what were the Laodiceans doing? They were busy commending themselves, saying, we're right. They thought they were glorifying God, I'm sure, when in reality they were disgracing his name just as though they had been walking around as naked. What about us? Are we doing what the book of Revelation in chapter 19 verse 8 says? Are we putting on fine linen by the righteous acts? Are we dressed in fine white linen? Is our sanctification growing to the point where we are 
imparting Christ's righteousness to others? Well, they weren't. So the Lord said, I advise you to buy fine white linen from me. Nothing about salvation. This is about sanctification. Then thirdly, the Lord says, I advise you to buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They were blind. They couldn't see anything. So what did the Lord want them to see? What does the Lord want us to see? Well, I think first of all, he wanted them to see that they were spiritually destitute. I think he wants us to see the truth of Scripture. And this illumination of truth is always through the Spirit of God. If we have the Spirit of Christ living within us, then our eyes will be open to the understanding of this Word, the Word of God. And we'll see the Bible in a new and fresh and wonderful way if we buy from the Lord eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. These guys were blind. I wonder if you're having trouble with your Bible reading. It's hard going. You open it up and you start reading and it's just so hard. It's difficult to understand. Then you have to ask yourself, am I allowing the spirit of truth to work in my life? Am I seeing or am I blind? Three things we need. Three things the church needed in Laodicea. Faith, righteousness and spiritual sight. And they're all available. They're all available to Christ. But where was Christ? He was outside the door knocking. If only they had asked. If only they had opened the door. If only we would open the door sometimes. So that's the first solution. The second solution is, comes from a compassionate and loving God. Even though this church is close to being spat out by him, he provides a way of escape in verse 19. He says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. What a kind and loving word. Our Lord is simply telling his whole church, despite our terrible failures, our terrible weakness, I love you. And it's because I love you that I reprove you, I discipline you. I need to point out that in verse 19, the the I there is emphatic. That means it's forceful. In other words, the Lord's reprove and discipline doesn't come from some hostile force. The reprove and discipline comes from the Lord of the church himself. Sometimes through his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the word of God, if we're not blind to the word of God, we're put the eye salve on and we read the word of God, we will be reproved and disciplined. And then we have other passages like Hebrews 11.12 where it says, All discipline for the moment seems, to be, seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All discipline. Whatever the Lord may use in our lives to discipline us because we're lukewarm, because we have no faith, our righteousness is, is uh, like we're naked. It says it's not joyful, it's sorrowful. But for those who have been trained by it, after that, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this becomes the basis of his exhortation to us. First he says there that we are to be zealous. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore, therefore be zealous. It's not a word we use a lot these days, but if you want to put another word in there, be passionate. Be passionate about the Lord. 
Interestingly enough, that is a present continuous. It means continue to be passionate. I urge you to be passionate. And then he says there's another vital act, and that is to repent. It's an aorist, a once-for-all repentance. Repent of your lukewarmness and be full of passion for the Lord. And so if we are lukewarm here this morning, like this church, then we need to be repent of that and then be passionate, a continuous going on, be passionate for the Lord. Sometimes we, re, we keep our passion for other things in our life. We need to be passionate about the Lord, not lukewarm. The next solution is in verse 20. This is a solution that the Lord has given us also. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, we, I often hear this verse that people use it to lead lost people to Christ. I'm not going to say it's wrong or right, but it's not the application here. The application is not saying to a person that the Lord is outside your heart, knocking on the door, and if you, if you open your door, he will come in. The application here is to this lukewarm church. Let's take the scripture in, that, in its context. I think any scripture used out of context loses its power. Scripture in context gives it power. The Lord was outside the Laodicean church, but he was speaking to individuals. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... Christ is there standing at the door and I have this picture in my mind. He says, behold, here I am. He might even have his hand up. I'm here, waving through the glass panel. I'm here. He's knocking. The tense signifies not a, not a single knock, but a continued knocking in the hope of a response. He's there continually knocking at the door of the church of the Laodiceans. And that's what I visualise. I visualise the Christ pounding on that door. And what is he asking for? He's asking, let me in. And if you let me in, I will come in and I'll dine with you and you with me. That's not talking about salvation. That's talking about the Lord coming in, desiring fellowship with them and communion with them, desiring to dine with them. The word there is for the evening meal. Just to come in and have fellowship and communion with his true brothers and sisters. Yet he was outside of this church in Laodicea. All he wants in all his churches is that the church abide in him. So Christ is pleading for each one of us to open our lives up to him fully so that he can come in and commune with us. And then that entropy won't be a problem because the Lord will be coming in and he will be adding things to the church and we will be dynamic and we'll be growing. If we leave Christ out of the church, the church will entropize. Is that a word, Pete? I don't know. <laughs> Some of us open the door and we say, come on in, Lord. But Lord, stay in the living room. Don't, don't wander around the other doors. We give God permission to occupy part of our lives, but the rest is off limits. You see, Jesus, you can have Sunday morning and maybe one night a week, but stay out of what I do in my free time. Jesus, you can have some input into my career, but don't tell me what to do with the money I make from that career. Don't start messing with my bank account. Christ wants all of us. And believe me, we don't have to be worried about giving him our all because he is the amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the creator of the universe. And Christ is willing to help this church get back on track. Christ is willing to receive them and to forgive them 
In fact, he's so desperate to receive them and to forgive them, he's standing outside knocking to get in. But to open the door needs a genuine and unconditional commitment from us. I wonder if you sit here this morning and the Word of God has revealed in your heart that maybe you're a bit lukewarm. There's no passion. You think you have it all, that you're naked, blind, wretched, poor. There needs to be a commitment from us to open that door because Christ wants to come in and and sup with you. He wants to fellowship with you. He wants to commune with you. Are you willing to do that this morning? Are you willing to make a stand and stop being lukewarm? And then the Lord, being as gracious as he is, gives us a promise. He says, do that. He who overcomes, if you do that, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Another wonderful promise that we've had in the last two churches. We've seen in the last three churches the promise that we have received from each one was to share in our Lord's reign. You see, the true church, the bride of Christ, is intended to reign with Christ. The church, when resurrected and glorified, will be raised up to serve with our Lord in eternity. In fact, to share his throne, just as our Lord's Father raised him up to become King of Kings. But I want you to take careful note of some words. And as he gave that promise, you'll see that he says, He who overcomes, he who is born again, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame. So what does that mean? Well, it means that Christ overcame by the way of the cross. And therefore, we have a pattern to follow. Just, re- just move to Revelation 12:11. Just read one verse there. Just to have a look at what it means to overcome and to be that the Lord overcame and what we should do. Revelation 12:11 says, "And they overcame him, that is Satan, because of the blood of the lamb. That's great. We all are covered in the blood of the lamb. This is also why, because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. How much more passionate can you get than that? So as Christ overcame by way of the cross, we are to overcome by our testimony and the fact that we do not love our life when faced with death, that we love the Lord. You know, at times we're going to face grim days. There's no doubt about that. I took you through that in, uh, in other scriptures. But never forget that what seemed like Christ's defeat at his death was in fact his victory over the world. So we shouldn't fear if we're called upon to suffer. For in this too, we will conquer. We will reign with Christ. What a great promise. And then for the last time in these letters, we hear our Lord say in verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. No need to even talk about that. You've heard it seven times now. He who wants to listen, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Because there are people, even here this morning maybe, who have an ear that aren't listening. We need to hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches. Not what the churches say about themselves or what the world says about the churches, but what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, these letters to the seven churches we've been through have all been God's x-rays. Each time we've had a church that from the outside 
didn't look too bad. But when the x-ray of God, the x-ray of the risen Lord looked upon our hearts, there was a different story completely. So we should reread these over and over again because it's what the Lord is seeing in the church. And these churches have been given to us that we might examine our own lives. Not, not the church. This is not written here so that we can cast a one out of ten for each of the seven churches. You're a two, you're a three. This was given to examine our own lives and our own ministries. <coughs> I think you already know this, but judgment is going to come on this world. And if anyone doesn't understand that and realise that it's getting closer every day, then you need to speak to Jeff or I or Pete. The fact is, judgment is going to come to this world. And for us as Christians, Peter tells us in the Scriptures, 1 Peter 4.17, that it first begins at God's house. So we're not exempt, it's just a different. Judgment begins at God's house and we've seen that in these seven churches. We've seen the, the risen Lord look at these churches, not for those churches' sake, certainly at the time, but they're gone now and the scripture is still there. Is it for Laodicea that we're reading today? No, no way, Laodicea's gone. It's for us, New Community Church. And in these letters, in the seven of them, we have found encouragement as well as rebuke. So my prayer is that the Lord will help us hear what the Spirit is saying today in this church. It's too late for the Laodiceans. It's not too late for us. So may the Lord help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to each individual today. Is he standing outside the church knocking? He's, he just wants to come in and sup with you to have fellowship and commune. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this last church that we've looked at today. A church, Father, that in the end just wanted you, you desired to spit them out. Father, we don't know how they went. We don't have any clue as to whether they listened to the, the way out that you gave them. We have no idea. Father, that, that these words are not about that church now. They're about us. Each individually, as a church. Father, just search our hearts and our minds and make sure that we understand that we are not lukewarm. Because, Father, it's a, a terrible thing to be even thought of of being spat out. Lord, we ask that you would search our heart and through your spirit just work in our lives what it is that you want us to do through this word. Father, we have read this word so that we may act upon it. We don't want to be hearers of the word, we want to be doers of it. And so I pray, Father, that each individual here this morning, Father, by your spirit, would be changed would be rebuked or encouraged wherever you would have them. And we ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.